Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, another East Meets West simulcast with Calgary, Alberta. It's fascinating when Calgary Radio talks to Hamilton Radio. And an update on the blockades. When will it all end? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Daniel Smith, Global News Radio 770 CHQR. She is part of the Calgary Connection uh, with this East Meets West simulcast. How are you, Danielle? I'm doing well. And I just so my whole audience gets to hear as well your introduction, Scott Thompson's talk show host of the Scott Thompson Show, 900 CHML in Hamilton, Ontario. We're also broadcasting up in Edmonton today where there happens to be a rail blockade. I don't know if you've been getting news about that. We have, we're just hearing about that now. So give us an update on that. What's happening with that story in well, Edmonton? Well, they uh, began at a, it's a place called Atchison. So it's within the Edmonton city limits, which is important because it falls to the Edmonton Police Service to take action. And our Premier Jason Kenney has just given a press conference where he said that uh, his uh, Solicitor General, Doug Schweitzer, has given the indication that that's what they expect, that uh, CN has sought an injunction and that they expect that the Edmonton Police Service are going to enforce it, enforce the rule of law. So quite a bit of a different action, I think, than what we've seen in the in the rest of the country. And maybe you can tell us why that would be. Why haven't we heard Doug Ford do the same thing in Ontario? Uh, nobody wants to touch this with a 10-foot pole. Uh, especially after what happened with Oka and such. And uh, the Prime Minister, you, you, I'll, I'll ask you about his response to all of this in just a sec. Um, but to, for him to stand down and, and kind of uh, wait for the premiers of British Columbia and the premiers of Ontario to, to solve this issue, I think is just deplorable. It's terrible uh, how he has uh, divided the country in this way. And after showing such support for truth and reconciliation, uh, now is leaving it for someone else to come together and, and just have lots of discussion and hug it all out. Uh, To me, that's deplorable. I wanted to ask you uh, uh, your thoughts on what happened in the House of Commons yesterday. We've been waiting for two weeks for the Prime Minister to come home from uh, his UN Security Council seat, Mad Dash, and when he finally does, uh, I think Canada was waiting for some sort of response. I I couldn't believe it. I was shaking my head with just the the ongoing gibberish, word salad, as Andrew Scheer had said, and then once Andrew Scheer comes back with a, a, a very firm response and saying that this is perhaps the weakest response he's ever heard from a national leader on, on a crisis such as this, he then, the Prime Minister then scolds Andrew Scheer and doesn't invite him to a meeting. I can't imagine how this played out, West. Well, it's pretty remarkable. In fact, we played the full clip of Justin Trudeau and then played the full clip of Andrew Scheer so that when Jugmeet Singh, the NDP leader, uh, we stood up and said that Andrew Shear was a racist. You can imagine that a lot of our audience was scratching their heads saying, what are you talking about? In fact, you see Jason Kenney and Andrew Shear have very much the same kind of language around this, being very frustrated at the way in which the solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en protesters, uh, it's being mischaracterized. They're, they don't have the solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en people. The Wet'suwet'en people, 85% of them are in favor of developing this coastal gas lane. 20 out of 20 of the elected band councils are in favor of it. Eight of the 13 hereditary chiefs are in favor of this. So if you want to show solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en people, you would be wanting to see this pipeline go ahead and you would be supporting the injunctions and supporting the police action to, to make sure that it does go ahead. So that's a, that's all I think Andrew Shear said, and and also in addition to that, that there is an expectation that the authorities should act. We can't be in a situation where where everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else. No, it's not my job; it's your job. Oh no, it's the not the provincial job; it's the local job. Oh, it's not the local job. Well, let's get back to the to the federal level. And you know what, Daniel? I think you have Daniel. You have hit the nail on the head. I mean, we always ask ourselves whenever these sorts of conflicts come out, how do we get here? How do we resolve this? How do we? And it always seems to be painted as Canada versus the Indigenous community. That's how this seems to be played in politics and in the media and such. And I was talking to, I believe it was Ellis Ross, uh, MLA for skiing in British Columbia, and he said very very plainly on this show, this is not Canada's problem. This is a problem within the Indigenous community between the elected band councils and the hereditary chiefs on who speaks for the Indigenous community. That's why we have such an issue moving forward. And hopefully all of this will finally draw attention to that. And again, as you're saying, 
saying, how can you stand up and say that this is against indigenous people and indigenous communities when the vast majority of them are on board? From what I understand, there's only four of the 12 hereditary chiefs that aren't on board with this. So again, it just amazes me how this gets painted as Canada against its indigenous community when in fact the majority of the indigenous community is on board with this and where the where the attention needs to be focused is on how do they resolve their issues and leadership moving forward so they can have the voice at the table. Well, and um, Ellis Ross is a, an amazing guy. So he's yeah. a liberal MLA. I, he must have told you about his own experience in the Heisland Nation. And he, he, he gave a good interview in Vivian Krause's documentary, Over the Barrel. She did a really great job on that documentary, going and talking to Indigenous leaders. And he said the same thing happened in his community, that you had environmental advocates who had a very different agenda than the prosperity of the community coming in, stopping development. And then when the development stops, they go away yeah. and the poverty is left. And these chiefs are left managing poverty and they don't want to do that anymore. When you look at the fact that there's a billion dollars worth of contracts and community benefits agreements along these lines that these communities stand to to benefit from, that is, that is life changing. That is going to allow them to wean themselves off of federal transfers. It's going to allow for local development. It's going to allow for local jobs. And that's what we should be celebrating. That's what reconciliation looks like. Instead, it looks like it's being derailed by the Extinction Rebellion and other fellow travelers. And what Ellis Ross will talk about is the violence within the community if you start to speak up against this. If you start to use the elected band council voice, then all of a sudden it's met with some sort of violence. And again, it's that sort of transparency. That's the part of this onion we need to pull back and ask ourselves why it is so difficult to resolve some of these issues. And, and it's simply because of a lack of consensus, it appears to me, on the part of Indigenous communities on who speaks for them. And I don't know how you move forward with that. Can you give us a bit of an update on what is happening with uh, the Mohawk? Because that's this uh, strange one for us. I mean, it, it, in fact, the RCMP are doing a reasonably good job of enforcing the injunction and the rule of law up in the communities where uh, where they have where they have the court order, but we're in no man's land when, when it yeah. comes to to this Mohawk. Uh, and here and here's another situation where the East has no idea what's going on in the West and how the RCMP have removed a, a portion of those blockades. I'm not sure exactly what the extent is there. Well, they've how- got the coastal gas link moving again, and that's what what um, the Mohawk are saying is uh, take the RCMP out of the territory, presumably. I guess, to allow for the the wet sweat and hereditary chiefs to go back and continue the blockade. They removed, the RCMP stepped in and removed exactly. the protesters from, as well, the the the, uh, the home of John Horgan. They were trying to do a yeah. citizen's arrest, and it sounds like Jason Kenney is going to be re, um, enforcing the the uh, the right of the Edmonton police to remove them in Alberta. So, what's going on there? <laughs> on Friday, we asked this, we, uh, we had a global news reporter out there in Belleville, and again, the wet sweat and blockades had come down, and they were asked how come these are still up. They were asked to move their cameras back uh, so they couldn't photograph people at the demonstration site and they said, well, now we have our own issues that we would like to resolve. So that's what's happened with these little sporadic demonstrations that are popping up uh, all over where uh, you know the country. And and again with Ontario, what happened with Oka, Ipperwash and such, the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police, do not want to go in there and, 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 and and cause violence. And you know, uh, some of the protesters, the anti-pipeline protesters, the the environmentalists, the extremists, that's exactly what they're looking for, because that gets them on the front page of every newspaper and every media outlet. And it appears as, oh, look what they're doing to the indigenous community. That's why there's got to be a transparent discussion on what is stopping these issues from being resolved. We are healing the nation with West versus East <laughs> in this broadcast. Can I ask you a couple more questions? Because I'm, I'm reading it. You have to interpret this for us, because now you've just told us that the Mohawk demands have morphed into something else. And there's a story out about how a group of residents in the Kanasataki Mohawk mm-hmm. territory west of Montreal have barricaded the Ban Council's office because they're upset at the comments of their Grand Chief. What is going on? It goes to your point of who's in charge, who speaks for these communities. That's exactly the point that I was uh, commenting on earlier. And this uh, in an article in the Toronto Star here, uh, Grand Chief Serge Simon, uh, Parliament Hill yesterday with uh, a group of people talking about all of this. But even as this is all going on, uh, 
people within his community sending an entirely different message. His quote was, I have a group of people that have padlocked my band office doors, uh, locked me out saying they want me out. And this was the Grand Chief, uh, Grand Chief of the Mohawk Council of Kanesataki. Uh, and again, this is where Oka went down and such. So they are very, mm. very sensitive to these issues and they, they, they don't want this to escalate into a violent situation. And again, there are uh, people who are provoking protesters. There are there are um, anarchists and pe- uh, you know people who are in the anti environmental or in the anti pipeline environmental movement who would love nothing than to see this escalate to this point where you know somebody gets hurt and there's violence because that helps sell their message. But yeah, it does show you another example of just how split, how divided communities are on this sort of thing and how somehow uh, they have to come together and, and, and speak for with some sort of united voice if, if they're going to move forward on this. I'm just going to remind people of the Oka crisis. July 11th, 1990 lasted 78 days uh, and then the, the dispute ultimately ended with one fatality. Also, I guess you're the Ipperwash. I don't know how Ipper long... Wash, another one, too. How long did that one last? And I know that also ended with the fatality of uh, uh, Dudley George, I think. Uh, yeah, uh, again, uh, a couple of weeks. Don't know off the top of my head exactly how long it was. But again, same sort of thing where all of a sudden the command is given. We've had enough. We want the blockades taken down. And that's exactly where we are right now. We're, you know, over two weeks into this, uh, hotheads out there, people want action. There, uh, new Ipsos poll out say the majority of Canadians want this resolved and and even support in some way fixing this within the indigenous indigenous community. I'm not sure how much the prime minister's office can do within the indigenous community to fix these leadership issues. These are internal struggles. So moving forward again, where do we go from here? Because if we escalate this, does it prove to be a peaceful situation like it was with the RCMP or do we end up with an ever wash? Well, and this is, I guess maybe it's a different context out there because I don't think anybody here is worried that our, our officers are going to escalate it to the point where somebody dies. I think that's part, maybe why we have such a high level of support for police intervention. 69% in Alberta, 68% in BC. I was very surprised how high it was for in BC. Alberta, I can understand, but considering, you know, I mean, this is common ground between Alberta and British Columbia, which we haven't seen a lot of lately. Well, exactly. And, but I want to understand what's, what the the difference is in your part of the world. Quebec, only 38% support for police intervention and Ontario, only 29% support. So um, maybe that explains why we haven't heard the same kind of tough talk from Doug Ford. I don't know that people would support him on that. Um, Again, I don't think... I think Doug Ford wants to make this decision. He wants the Prime Minister to make this decision. If this goes horribly wrong, Doug Ford does not want this on his hands. That being said, the Premier of Quebec is now putting more pressure on uh, the Premiers who are meeting, I guess, today with a conference call and such in in order to talk about all of this. Uh, They're complaining about the shortages of supplies and such in, in Quebec. We remember during the CN strike, it was only a few days in and Quebec was upset that they weren't getting their propane. So uh, the Premier of Quebec one of those on board who says, I want the blockades removed. So it's going to be fascinating to see how this how this continues because the Prime Minister, uh, in the end, is going to have to make a call. The provinces don't want to take the heat for this. Well, this is what I'm wondering. I, I did have somebody on from the Barley and Wheat Commission last week wondering, are we going to be impacted here because of rail blockades? And in Alberta, we're in a position where we basically can supply all of all our malters and our, our flour mills. Um, in Quebec, you identified some of the issues. We're also hearing about drinking water advisories that may need to be issued because of a lack of chlorine. Is there, this is what I'm wondering, is Ontario, do you feel like you're, because you can supply yourself with most of what you need, that this isn't going to impact you, which is why there isn't the pressure on law enforcement to resolve it? I'm trying to understand um, if, if this is mostly an impact on Quebec or whether you're hearing some big impacts in Ontario too. You know, uh, Danielle, this goes way back to the discussion we had months ago in regard to the oil industry out west why the East doesn't understand that. Uh, the East can be the center of its own universe. I'm sure I'm not the first one to say that on Western airwaves out there. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, and as I said to you back then, the oil industry needs to do a better job of selling all of this to drown out the noise coming in from the opposition. I think the same thing applies to this in, in the sense that, uh, you know, uh, uh, they're buying into a little bit of the prime minister's uh, uh, 
stance and in, in his spiels and in, in the hugging and the love and all of that sort of thing. But I don't think a lot of them realize what these internal issues are that we've been speaking about earlier. You know, I wish I could give the West a better expl- explanation than that. But honestly, that's the best I got. You know, Scott, we're going to find out what people have to say. My phone board is fully lit up here. And I can tell you we're going to get more calls from the West on this than the East. But let's hear it. It's good for, it's good for the East to hear this. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Great to be here from uh, 900 CHML in Hamilton. Our phone line's 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Danielle, we got a whole bank of calls too, so if you want me to go first and then we'll go from there. You start it up and then we'll go to Sharon. All right, uh, phone lines are open in the hammer, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Tony, you're on in Hamilton, Edmonton, and Calgary. What do you have to say to the West? Well, I see to the West that uh, when they're talking about the injunction, I believe that is sovereign uh, native land. And how can the uh, RCMP or the police in that area issue a court injunction through the Canadian government and then tell the natives that, oh, you have to uh, uh, obey Canadian rules even though they have uh, a sovereign uh, governance? Well, Danielle, hang on a sec, Tony. Danielle, your thoughts here? Because there's, you, there's a treaty rights it. here. Right, I'll tell ahead. you how we see it, and I'll tell you how the same Supreme Court sees it. That's what, that in, that's what the Supreme Court ruled on a week ago, that they are self-government and sovereignty are not the same thing. I think that there is this mythology that's now built up, that because we have a nation-to-nation relationship, that we're using that language, that they think they are a separate country from Canada. The Supreme Court said, no, 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 no. Everybody follows the law of Canada. They have certain powers that um, some are provincial, some are municipal, but they are not a separate country. And I think that that is the misconception that we've belabored under for the last number of decades. And I think that needs to be corrected because it's just not the case. That's why they have the power to issue an injunction. And that's why they have the power to enforce the building of the coastal gasoline pipeline. All right, that's Tony. Let's uh, hear from Dave. Dave, go ahead. You're on with the West. I sympathize with the West. I, I can see their point completely. A nation needs free movement for a while, the oil. And now we're seeing on, in Ontario, industrial products over rail. And I find it another thing that Trudeau has spelled at. I also do respect the Quebec people and the Premier of Quebec, but if he had a pipeline, he wouldn't be in this pickle right now. Hmm. You know what I found, I found interesting <laughs> about the way uh, your, your, your listener framed it there? I said, I sympathize with the West. This isn't really about the West. I mean, I sympathize with Ontario and Quebec. You guys are the ones where you're going to end up with a lack of propane and shortages of supplies and chlorine not in your drinking water. That's what I think is so surprising to me is that this is still being kind of framed as a Western issue. It's it's now really very much become an Eastern issue. I think that has the center of the universe thing to do with it all over again, Danielle. Go ahead. Go ahead, Dave. No, I agree exactly what you said, but now we're we're, we're kind of uh, feeling it as well over here. Um, the blockade will end eventually. It can't go on forever. Um, I hope things get resolved peacefully. Um, but the reality is, um, you know, we have American interference, too, in our resources here. There's, there's American environmentalists up here for, yeah. you probably know the reasons, don't yeah. want to see us uh, build a pipeline out to B.C., and I believe B.C. itself doesn't want to see it because it may affect their coal industry. So we have a lot of problems here. And hopefully we can get past them. You All got right. it. Let Dave, me uh, let me get uh, let me get some Western voices here. We got Sharon and Ken on the line. Let's go to Sharon first. Sharon, go ahead. What's your thought today? Oh, thank you. Um, I worked for a pipeline company and a mining company, and we always employed Indigenous. And we laid pipeline in uh, Fernie, BC. No issues, no problems. I just don't understand, and I feel so sorry for the Indigenous young men who always came to the companies and looked for work and were hired. The young people now, they can't work. Why? How much money do these heritage chiefs make that they don't care about the people that they're supposed to be um, ruling or whatever? Sharon, thank you so much for that perspective. You know, Scott, I wanted to ask you about that, too, because I think that the way we frame it is that reconciliation is 
including everybody in the economy. It's making sure people have the ability to develop their own companies and hire their own people and make their own money. And so we feel like we're moving down the path of reconciliation with with projects like this. Is it perceived differently out there? Uh, you know, again, I think this is an onion we are now peeling back. I think with this is, this issue and with the blockades that have been happening, I think it is it is pointing and shedding more light as to what is going on here and the indi- and the indifference within the indigenous community. And I I think that's a great Canadian lesson for everyone because again, uh, obvious with 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 what this Ipsos poll said today, uh, although the majority of Canadians want to see the rail blockades gone. They also have great concern over how we're handling this. But again, I'm not sure that we have the answers to that. I'm not sure even those that are sympathetic and and demonstrating know the answer to that. I think these solutions are within the Indigenous community between those two factions of the elected band council and the hereditary chiefs. All right, let me get Ken in before we go to a, a quick break. Ken, go ahead. What's your thought? I wonder if the fine people of Hamilton realize that Asphalt is made out of petroleum. We put petroleum in pipelines, they are containers. And when it gets down to Ontario and Quebec, you take it out of the container and spread it all over the place. Millions of acres are covered with petroleum down there. Here too. Well, they they sure know now. (laughs) What what do you think, Scott? Are people aware of the whole range of petrochemicals and the whole and the uses of them? We're still using corduroy roads down here. I don't know what that (laughs) man is talking about. Yeah, uh, you know, his point is very well taken, and it's something that we all, everybody from east to west, has to realize. All right, Uh, I'm Scott Thompson. We're broadcasting live from 900 CHML in Hamilton, hooked up with 630 Chad in Edmonton, and Danielle Smith, 770 CHQR in Calgary. And I should tell you. Laura says this. I love Mr. Scott Thompson. What a respectful diplomatic host recognizing the sensitive entanglements between East and West. Great show. Thank you. And thank you so much for uh, for doing this today again, Scott. I've, I've got a number of calls who are still lined up here. Let me take one and then I'll go to you and we'll see how many we can get through. Yep. We got Ed on the line. Ed, go ahead. What's your thought today? Oh, I was just wondering, okay, the the main uh, natives are, not, are with the pipelines and everything. Why don't the mainstream media go interview a firm and get their word on it? Well, Ed, thank you for, I mean, thanks for your thought on that. And we have been playing clips all the way along as they've been made available. But look what happens. You got the Grand Chief of the Mohawks uh, speaking out and he gets barricaded in his own office. So yeah. this is part of the problem is I think people are fearful. What do you think, Scott? I heard the same thing, and we talked about Ellis Ross earlier on from Skeena. He said the same thing. Uh, there's violence within the communities, and there's intimidation. And as you just said, we're seeing that with uh, what's happening in, happening in Belleville and, and a chief being locked out of his own office. So, But but that's that's where the dialogue needs to start, I believe. Okay, go ahead. Do you have another call there? Yep, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Mike, go ahead. Uh, speak to the West. What do you have to say? It's so sad to see the country so divisive over this. We're like uh, one of the greatest countries on the planet. But uh, to, to use your metaphor of peeling back the layers of the onions here, one layer, um, I don't know if everyone forgets World War II. If it wasn't for Canada, Britain, and the USA, everybody would be speaking Germany, German right now. And there would be a swastika every, around every corner. And, you know, I know it's, it's sad that, uh, to even say offensive things and stuff like that, because that's probably pretty offensive. So, uh, unfortunately, we're losing the truth by worrying about offending people. And one more layer of the onion, um, for reconciliation, I know, like, it's a shame what happened. There's been atrocities for probably every race, creed, color over time. But uh, you talk about reconciliation, there's a lot of very good perks that Indigenous people have. They don't pay income tax. They don't pay HST. Um, they have free benefits, dental prescriptions, 100% dental, and uh, uh, they don't even pay a dispensing fee. There, there's a very large start for reconciliation right there. So I don't know why, why like, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's pathetic the way our government is handling this, and it's got to change. Thank Thanks you, Mike. Thanks for that, Mike. You know, I should just add, too, I, I moderated a conference not so long ago. One of our richest bands in Alberta is the Fort Mackay. They've had 2.5 
billion dollars worth of private contracts that have come into their First Nation. Another one, Enoch, they get $17 million a year in own source revenue and only $3 million a year mm. from uh, from Ottawa. So the, this is why economic development is so important. It allows for them to, to wean themselves off those federal transfers that Mike was talking about. And that's, I think, so what he, a large number of communities want to do. Let me ask you this, Danielle. On that note, on what you were just talking about with, with this conference, uh, my question is, and I remember reading something about a, a, a quite a uh, successful ban near Soyuz in BC, and and my question was, why why don't we learn from that model? Why don't we learn from those templates? Why are those that can run these successful bans not helping out those who can't? Well, and, and I, I think if we answer that question, we'll find the solution. And it's the same as the Canadian government. They've got to a point where there's there's ways they can do business, there's ways they can't. And they move on where the profit is, and they forget about the customs and the thoughts that they cannot change. Do you know what's been so different in Alberta in the last two years? Is that that is exactly what's happening. In fact, next week, there's an Indian Resource Council meeting happening in Calgary, February 26, 27. 110 bands that have energy development are all getting together to strategize yeah. and talk about how they can all benefit from it. So maybe that just needs to happen in every province and we'll, we'll end up getting somewhere. I got Lois and Dave and Les and Lloyd on the, blo- on the line. Let me go to Lois next, then we'll go to you. Lois, go ahead. What's your thought today? Oh, good morning, Danielle and Scott. Um, my question is, if another company were damaging your business to the extent that this blockade has damaged CN or VIA or multiple other, the agriculture business, would they not be taking them to court in some fashion? And why are they not considering that now? Lois, it's a good point. I've had a few people say, why not take try to get some civil damages out of those who are causing the problem? I don't know. Maybe that's the next step. I think right now everybody's focused on trying to get the trains moving again. Scott, do you have someone else there? Yep. Let's get Tommy. Tommy, go ahead. You're speaking to the West. What do you have to say? Good afternoon to all my friends out West. I, uh, I just wanted to make it quick. I think it's a disgrace what the government is doing right now. They need to get in there. And this blockade, I, I think people are forgetting millions and millions of dollars of goods travel across this country. And I think people are forgetting about all the ships sitting in uh, Vancouver Harbor, just sitting there idle waiting, costing them a lot of money. We look like wimps. they got to end it. I'll tell you, if this was in Russia or the U.S., the blockade would have ended a long time ago. Hmm. It's such a good point. It's so funny. I mean, what, one of the things we've been talking around here is the prime minister seems more interested in trying to get a seat on the UN Security Council. What are Russia and China and the US thinking about his inability to solve problems in his own country? And he wants to have a bigger voice on the international stage. I can't imagine that's helping his aspirations any. No, we're getting emails that say, uh, my question with regards to the injunction by Belleville, the courts have issued an injunction for the blockade and its removal. Uh, the OPP commissioner refuses to enforce hmm. the injunction. Why is uh, they not being charged with contempt of court. And again, I think that goes back to the violence. Uh, they don't want a federal problem, uh, any federal bloodbath on uh, on provincial territory. That's my guess. Yeah, uh, I think you're right. And they probably need Doug Ford to say what our Premier Jason Kenney has said, that they expect that the uh, authorities are going to enforce the injunction. I don't think I've heard him say that that clearly. No, and, and that's a very valid point. I mean, you know, he doesn't have to go in there and, and do the dirty work for the federal government, but he should stand firm on what his commitment is and putting the pressure on on the Prime Minister to do just that. Okay, we got Dave uh, on the line as well. Dave, go ahead. What's your thought today? Um, I was just thinking in terms of the blockade, Mr. Trudeau is going to allow this to continue because then at the end of the month, he'll say that there hasn't been enough discussion about the tech mine in Alberta, even though it's passed through all the loopholes, and it'll allow him to walk away from the West once again, uh, sticking the knife in the back of not just Westerners, but all Canadians who believe that we actually have to have an economy uh, to, to fund a society. Dave, thank you for that. I don't know if that's making the radar screen out there, Scott. Uh, Fre- Frontiers Tech Mine is a $20 billion project. They've got 10 days at the federal level to decide whether they're going to approve it or not. And I can tell you, it is a massive hot-button issue out here. Have you have you heard anything about it up yeah, there? Yeah, I mean, everybody's saying what's going to happen with this situation in regard to the wet sweat and what happens with the the, ga- the coastal gas pipeline? What What's going to happen with the Trans Mountain Pipeline? What's going to happen with the project that you're talking about? Uh, again, I've had many say, 
say that uh, that in a sense, the indigenous community played its hand too early here by trying to stop uh, the natural gas pipeline when in fact, uh, how does that set the stage for the Trans Mountain and these other projects you're talking about? Scott, you've actually given me some confidence. If they can work it out here, then they're going to have their strategy in place for for the next time. So, so maybe we'll actually get some of those other projects built. You know what I've learned from this conversation this time out is we are still way too politically correct in the East. You are doing more out West to understand the issues within the Indigenous community and the issues they have moving forward and working together with them. That's what we need to do out here as well. All right, Dave, you got any more calls there? Uh, don't, but I'll read you an email. It's shameful, but not surprising that our blackface prime minister calls everyone racist when he gets called out for being for missing in action, uh, backing away from the heavy lifting that is sorely needed here. Great show, linking East and West, says Martin. All right, let's see if we can get some more of your callers. And we've got a couple more on my line, Les and Lloyd and Nicole. Let's go to Les. Les, go ahead. What's your thought today? Hey, hi. Uh, I'm good. Go sorry, ahead. Sorry, sorry, Danielle. I just think that, um, I think that, that, uh, Government is just crazy because, <laughs> well, they're they're giving money to to the native bands and the and the reserves, and and the people don't have clean drinking water. Les, it's a good point. I mean, you go a long way towards solving some of the issues around reconciliation by making sure that people had a basic quality of life and standard of living. Uh, any comment on that, Scott? Uh, to add to this, we're just getting a news report from Global News. Via Rail says partial passenger train service will not resume this week, as mm-hmm. was announced one day earlier, as the company moves to temporarily lay off nearly 1,000 people. Uh, we were hearing in the hundreds before, but obviously now uh, it's up to 1,000. In a statement this afternoon, Via says it has no choice but continue the cancellation of its services on a large part of the network. Wow. We only have... Let me just uh, see if we can squeeze Lloyd in for one last call here. Yeah. Lloyd, go Go ahead. What's your thought today? Hey, Danielle. I just wanted to bring to your attention that uh, Conestawaki uh, Mohawk chief has totally retracted his statements from yesterday. I uh, just saw that online. So uh, he has bowed to the pressure from within his community, the small group. Uh, in light of that and what's going on with the wet to wet and 85% of them in support of it, yet their voices aren't being heard, I'd like to coin a new phrase for what Canada has devolved into. We are not a democracy. We are a thugocracy. Well, thank you for that, Lloyd. Boy, we're going in the wrong direction. I gather yeah. Andrew Shear has put forward the notion that he might decide to call for a, a confidence vote. I don't know how that would go down in your part of the world. Uh, boy, oh boy, I, I, you know, I hadn't even thought of that at this point. I think we've got a few more steps before that happens, although uh, the hourglass is running out. Time oh. is running out on all of this. It sure is, and the time is running out on us. Thank you so much for doing this again, Scott. Always, always appreciate talking with you. Always a blast, Danielle, and hi to everybody in Calgary and Edmonton. We look forward to doing this again. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's get to it. Uh, it was amazing. I was um, I was away for the weekend, and I'm watching the Prime Minister speak on my device because there's no TV where we are or any of that sort of stuff, cable. I'm just, you know, streaming it. And I'm watching this, and, and I'm shaking my head thinking, this guy's just going on and blah, 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 blah. And has, you know, after 12 days, I think by that time it was 12 or 13 days because he's off jet-setting around trying to secure a seat on the UN Security Council, um, you know, and finally decides he's not going to go to uh, Barbados, I believe it was. So after 12 days, everybody's standing, 13 days standing in the house waiting for something, and he just gets up and grandstands and gives us all another big speech. And, and, and it just, it's just so uh, frustrating because it, it's, 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 it's just more of the same, which is nothing. I, you know, I, I, I just question whether this man has the capacity to do this job. He just doesn't get it. And then Andrew Shear stands up and says, this is the weakest speech I've ever heard uh, a leader give in regard to a national crisis. And oh my God, uh, the prime minister pulls a hissy fit on the guy and, 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 and doesn't invite him to a meeting with the other representatives from the opposition. Like what kind of storyline are we running here? How about some transparency? How about some truth? 
So, uh, you know, uh, it was incredible to watch, and we're going to play you a couple of clips. This is uh, the Prime Minister uh, yesterday talking about, uh, I've got to be patient. It is time, past time, for this situation to be resolved. But what we are facing was not created overnight. We are not asking that you stop standing up for your communities, your rights, and for what you believe. We only ask that you be willing to work with the federal government as a partner in finding solutions. There are those who would want us to act in haste, who want us to boil this down to slogans and ignore the complexities, who think that using force is helpful. It is not. I don't know. I don't think anybody's looking for haste. I think they're just looking for a prime minister with some sort of plan and some sort of leadership. Like, could we not see this coming? Uh, let's bring in, Dan, uh, bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and Canadians for Affordable Energy. He is with us now. Uh, Dan, your thoughts on uh, the politics involved in all of this and how... The prime minister gives us a speech yesterday, which, my goodness, I, I'm just shaking my head. And then when the leader of the opposition and, you know, he, he was certainly heavy handed, Andrew Scheer, you know, he, he just like, how dare he talk to me like that? He pulls a hissy fit and he goes in a closed door meeting without him. How do you explain this? Well, explain it by a prime minister who is derelict in his responsibilities in the first place. I think you've clearly outlined uh, where I think many Canadians were concerned from the get go. This is not a new pipeline. It is a natural gas pipeline. It's worth $40 billion to the Canadian economy. It's worth tens of thousands of jobs. It's worth billions of uh, investments uh, and long-term agreement, financial benefits to all of the uh, bands along the way, including the West Suetsen. And of course, you have quite rightly identified, uh, you know, eight of 12 of the hereditary chiefs have signed on to this. Of the four that didn't, two didn't bother showing up to any of the meetings. Uh, and of course, we have a prime minister who is, you know, uh, knew this was an issue a week and a half ago, yet spent most of his time doling out money and trying to win a seat that he can't win on the Security Council. Now that Russia and China have indicated they, they just ain't supporting Canada for obvious reasons. Uh, we've taken them to task and they're not happy with us and the feeling is mutual. So, you know, you have a prime minister now who is, uh, you know, basically, uh, wants to take his marbles home just with his little friends over there in the green and NDP and block. Uh, but he's not going to actually stand up uh, and recognize that what has now been, well, the CN moves a quarter trillion dollars in Canadian goods every year. And we've been offline for about two weeks. Uh, so by my calculation, that's, uh, that's coming awfully close to about a $5 billion hit to the Canadian economy. Uh, and of course, uh, the effect it's going to have on consumers is uh, is yet to be completely understood and felt. I think we just start with uh, the 450 workers at uh, CN who were given the pink slips uh, last evening, at least temporarily laid off. But there's much more to this, of course, as it impacts and cascades throughout the economy. Uh, you know, CN is a massively important uh, part of our economy. Uh, the line that's in question that's been uh, that has been shut down due to the protests in Belleville is the only east-west rail connection we have between you know uh, western and eastern Canada. So it involves manufactured goods, consumer goods, uh, fuel products. Uh, we know the list is rather is rather lengthy. Go to your grocery store and then look how many products may not be there now that were there a week or two ago. Uh, these are perishable goods. Everyone is signaling that there's a significant problem here and that the national interest is now being, in, in large part, affected. That's when the prime minister should be acting. By acting, he may not like the outcome, but he's got to allow, you know, either fish or cut bait. Scott, he can't continue down this road of word salad, as, uh, as Andrew yeah. Shear quite rightly pointed out yesterday. Uh, sooner or later, uh, someone has to get these rails back up and running or we're going to run out of a country. And I think that's where much of the debate now is we are sensitive to what's going on. We want to make sure that our Indigenous people get a fair shake. And guess what? That's already happened. This is not a new story. So and, uh, uh, what will happen with the four of the 12 hereditary chiefs that don't want this uh, or, or haven't answered calls? I mean, is there resolve there? Is there something that the government, if the prime minister was to go and knock on the door and sit down, is there something he can do? 
Well, he should have been there along with uh, Mr. Horgan to say, look, we're here, we're going to give our best shot. But he wasn't around for doing that. All he's around to do is give the odd little rehearsed speech. Uh, and, of course, at the end of all of this, uh, you know, chastise anybody who would happen to disagree with him. I can't, believe how, I can't believe how he held uh, Andrew Shear out of that meeting because yeah. he didn't like being held to account that way. Yeah, yeah. No, no, he, he doesn't like to be held to account because you have to understand him. I knew him personally. I had to sit with him for four years. He's a very shallow fellow. Yeah, uh, he is extremely uh, thin-skinned, um, and you know he 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 believes that his woke progressive ways are the way ahead here. The reality here is that the country, which is progressive, which has been bent over backwards, which is helping your indigenous people, uh, there is nothing that Mister Shear said yesterday that I could not possibly factually and in truth disagree with. What's happened is that this issue has been hijacked by activists. Yeah, uh, I'm from coming up from the United States. They're not indigenous. And they're certainly not folks that are interested uh, in anything more than shutting down Canada's energy sector. And if Canadians want to do that, then damn well, shut your hospitals down, shut your education down, shut everything down about this country, because that's where we're heading. Now, I'm not getting animated for a reason. Uh, the, the reality is that this country is on the verge of economic uh, uh, chaos, and it is on the verge of uh, fracturing its once indisputable uh, solidarity. And I think I'm concerned, uh, obviously, what the Prime Minister is doing is playing divide and conquer, and this time it's going to cost Canadians whether they realize it or not. What about the Indigenous groups, the majority of them, that want this? Why are we not hearing more from them? Well, you got to ask the Canadian media, especially the ones that get $50 million a year to talk about climate change. And I'm not being you know, pedantical here. I mean, the reality is that some of them uh, will simply do what the federal government tells them to do and how to project this. I mean, calling this uh, defenders of the people who are protesting or land defenders is just pure... Well, again, the Prime Minister is making this sound like this is Canada against Indigenous communities or versus Indigenous communities, and it's not. It's This is a internal... Uh, leadership uh, issue between the hereditary chiefs and the indigenous elected uh, band councils and, and who is speaking for the indigenous community. This well, has more to do with that than it does to do with us, with Canada. It does, and, and I think among the indigenous, given the vast majority are there, I mean, there's a lot of issues that have to be settled, but one of the ways in which you Absolutely. don't settle this is simply shutting down the Canadian economy. No one has the right to do that. You cannot throw yourself and say, I have a moral right, and this is civil disobedience, we have the right to exercise it, your interests and where the broad interests of society starts. And so I think for many people, uh, this has now become, and I'm surprised it's only 61%, because I think the other 39% must be brain dead. Because if you think this is funny, or you think this is okay, and that uh, you know you must be uh, on the dole or something, those welfare checks will be cut off fairly soon as well. Uh, so, um, why, why are we so concerned about this smaller group of indigenous, uh, communities or hereditary chiefs rather that, that, uh, don't want this rather like if we really cared what the indigenous community wants, why don't we listen to the majority of them? Why, why are we not more identifying the anti, the uh, anti-pipeline, the extreme environmentalists who have hijacked this well for the 10 years those environmentalists have been working to create this kind of a scenario they thought it would be over the trans mountain pipeline you know i scott uh, one of the reasons i said that wouldn't go ahead is because of what's happened uh, i think they jumped the gun here um what they've done is they've used the uh, coastal uh, gas link as their uh, as their cause as opposed to waiting for the trans mountain pipeline to come around and of course that's meant that they've really revealed and betrayed the tactics that are there. These are paid activists. These are people that are well-trained. Uh, in fact, in other words, they should have wa- they should have waited and, and shut down, not the one that was natural gas. Is that your point right. here? Yeah. And yeah. Then it's funny so what happened? Where does this leave the Trans Mountain then, or anything well, else? <laughs> exactly what I've been saying. It ain't going anywhere, and uh, Trudeau knows that, and he's okay with that because he doesn't want to fight them. Yeah. And he's probably done a nudge, nudge, wink, wink behind the scenes. If he's willing to sit down and lay down with the uh, NDP and the, the whack jobs over in the Green Party that want to shut down our energy infrastructure, and they are whack jobs because the reality is that you're going to kill the country doing this, then you can understand where Trudeau's real allegiance lies. It's not with the energy sector. He wants to uh, choke it off, force it back into the ground, and uh, you know go along his little sunny ways, maybe you know a couple windmills here and a few thousand 
you know, uh, photovoltaics uh, over over there. Uh, so solar power. The reality is that renewables is a joke. He knows it, and it cannot possibly replace the bulk and the need uh, and the economic weight of our number one sector. It ain't manufacturing. It's actually energy extraction, mining, and production and distribution. So, you know, the reality I think for many of us here is that. If you voted for Trudeau, for God's sakes, give your head a shake because you're likely to give yourself a big fat pink slip at the end of this week. That from former Liberal MP Dan McTagg uh, and Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. It's uh, yeah, Who knows where this is going, but it certainly has become extremely political. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies. He is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good to be with you, Scott. Tim, how much of this is about politics? How much of this is about indigenous, uh, the indigenous community? How much is this about the environmental movement and anti-pipeline protesters? Uh, probably a bit of everything there in the answer, a bit of a buffet table of, of, of things. Um, Your thought on the exchange in the House yesterday? Uh, I just think it was all handled very poorly. I, I agree with you. Look, uh, Sheer has said some things uh, last week. He talked about indigenous people being privileged. That was a dumb comment. However, um, the prime minister has been leading his response by saying, you know, there needs to be dialogue. All people need to be heard. Uh, you have to give voice. You have to have respect. Well, excluding Sheer, even though what you think he said was stupid, yeah. uh, just doesn't help you at all, right? It was was dumb. It, it's the worst. This is where Trudeau gets himself in trouble and looks a bit like a phony when he does things like that. So what can he do at this point? What should the prime minister be doing now that he's back? Well, I, hello. Well, they got to get this solved, right? Uh, we talked about this last week. Um, There's different signals being sent that maybe a solution is coming. Uh, I think he's got to do as uh, as it looked like uh, was trying to be done yesterday: engage other engage indigenous leaders who are not supportive of the blockade to wade in and, and speak about uh, speak about that, and uh, have others speak out about why. Uh, why it's important that this ends because it's gone beyond making a point right now and it's getting more intense each day. Mr. Sheary is giving voice to frustration that is out there uh, among a lot of Canadians who do believe uh, the rule of law and rightly so should be upheld. He's egging them on a little bit. He shouldn't be doing that, but uh, but not too much egging is needed because it's a it's very hot right now, Scott, and it's very precarious, so it needs to be managed responsibly. Uh, who, um, in the end, is this between Canada and Indigenous communities, or is this within the Indigenous community, that being who, who speaks for the community, the hereditary chiefs or the elected band council? Is this, uh, not, again, is this, not, is this not the root of, 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 of the majority of these complex issues? Well, they're, they're certainly inter, in, if I can describe them this way, inter-Indigenous community challenges, as we're saying, seeing play out here. And the government themselves cannot solve that. The, the, the federal government cannot solve that. I think the, that's, that's the point that I'm making right there. Sorry to interrupt, Tim, but are we naive to think, especially the Prime Minister, that he can solve those issues. I mean, we can certainly help, we can certainly guide, but is this not within the community itself to figure out who goes, who speaks for it moving forward? Well, I think it depends on community to community. With this Indigenous group, it certainly seems like they do have to sort the things out internally. Uh, From what I understand, it's four out of 12 hereditary chiefs that aren't on board. Will yeah, those four it, hereditary chiefs ever be on board? Uh, likely not. Uh, and the elected chiefs are the ones who get elected down there. They, are, they were supportive of, of the project in question, right? They did not support the, uh, the blockade. Uh, the, the key thing, though, I think, Scott, is uh, where the prime minister has to be careful, where the other opposition leaders have to be careful, is affording power to more power than perhaps they should have to the hereditary chiefs, because if you start negotiating with somebody who is outside the power structure, then you're creating a new structure that you have 
to manage. And they, uh, from what I understand, they don't, the hereditary chiefs don't necessarily speak, well, don't speak for the majority because the other groups are on board. Also my understanding, but again, you get into the inter-Indigenous uh, uh, strife and challenges, and the same as uh, non-Indigenous people, that exists there. It's just more pronounced often. And what can the Prime Minister do to fix that? Probably not much. <laughs> not not anything quickly anyway, right? Uh, and he, I don't think he can speak for any one of those communities as a member or offer a very specific local perspective. And often it's about who gets what in these local communities, who uh, who has respect of traditional rights versus modern practices, right? It's not for Justin Trudeau, Andrew Scheer, Jagmeet Singh, or anybody else yeah. to tell Indigenous people these things. Uh, it, it seems that the Prime Minister is hesitant to, to hit, hit this head-on simply because he's more interested in selling the message to the environmental side of this than he actually is solving the Indigenous problem, because there's, there's value in this for him. Uh, there is value in this form. It also distracts from the current tech project and what they may do next week. Uh, so, look, there's most certainly political benefit in all of this. It allows him to look like he's catching up uh, on uh, some of the things he promised to Indigenous Canadians and has not delivered on. But there's all of that, to be sure. Uh, he just, But equally, I think, let's not forget history, right? And you and I... A uh, little older, although not that old, we remember Oka. And no yeah. Canadian prime minister, no yeah. Canadian leader, and that's why you see most of the premiers run away from this. The 10-foot pole wants to have uh, an Oka happen again. That was 30 years ago. Uh, as we know, someone died. It was a tense, awful standoff. That's what they're trying to guard against. But you also can't be so paranoid that you don't act. So there's been a lot of lessons learned. Uh, since then. So, I, look, I, if we are still in heading into this weekend and this isn't solved, I begin to worry that there could be some dramatic escalation because people's tempers are fraying. Um, what do you think some what, what sort of solution do you think can be arrived at that will convince those four hereditary chiefs to jump on board? Or if they aren't, how do you resolve this without removing blockades? I, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know if there's a very specific issue they want solved. Um, look, I, I, you know, does the prime minister or somebody, the indigenous services minister, promise uh, some special um, a consultation on on uh, the specific issues that are key to the hereditary chiefs. Uh, I don't know um, that there doesn't, at least from what we're seeing and hearing, Scott. There's no obvious public pathway out because so much of this still seems to be about the symbolism of understanding the historical repression that. Uh, many indigenous people live through and still mm. feel in and live in their culture. Well said. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman Summa Strategies. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good to talk to you, Scott. Bye. You, you take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.